Well, it's a joy to be with you um, this morning, and uh, my wife, Mindy, and I have been here less than a year. We became members uh, this past, uh, we received an Easter, and this church has just been a, a joy to us, um, a real refreshment. We really have sensed um, God really using this church to connect with him, and we've experienced uh, just a rejuvenation of worship at this church, and we're very, very grateful for that. When we spoke at the church retreat uh, earlier this year, um, Mindy and I shared how we came to know Jesus in a personal way. Many of you weren't there, and I wanted to give you a super abbreviated uh, uh, version of that. Um, it's a true version. But anyway, um, I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois. This was 1970, and if you're doing your mental calculation, 48 years ago. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, what happened there uh, was that I had rejected my religious upbringing for a number of complex reasons. And then um, I had joined a, a wild fraternity house uh, on the campus and kind of lived the party life. And then a jolt came into my life when the girl that I thought I was going to marry, I had dated her for three years uh, exclusively, uh, wrote me a letter. She was attending the University of Indiana um, and told me that she had met someone else. And my life became a mess uh, because I'd kind of built my life um, around her. And uh, my fraternity brothers um, told me, well, go out to the bars and find another woman. That made me a further mess, okay? And then finally, um, after a night where I was on, on an all-night drinking binge, I found myself um, realizing that my need was much, much deeper. And though I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional church, I did know uh, that I needed the Lord. I got up that morning and uh, walked to the nearest church. It happened to be Twin City Bible Church in Urbana. And uh, I came in there and through the preaching and teaching and the care of a pastor, came to know Jesus Christ personally. So that's 48 years ago. Well, in God's providence, um, 21 years after I became a Christian there, uh, the church called me to come back and be its pastor. Uh, here where I'd come in after a an all-night drinking binge, I found myself serving communion. A uh, very different experience. But um, very soon, I started to get to know the people, and I met a woman um, by the name of Genevieve Shade. She was in her late 70s, single woman, and uh, she was dressed all prim, proper. She was very polite. And here's a church of two-thirds college students, and uh, she was wearing a dress. Um, everybody else had jeans on, and uh, I wondered what keeps Genevieve Shade in this church? Well, I found out because they had a Wednesday night prayer meeting in that church, and I came there, and I heard Genevieve, along with some other senior citizens, I'm one of those now, but anyway, <laughs> I, I heard them praying for students. Genevieve was a teenager in 1933 when her parents and three other couples started that church, and um, they had this vision of being a church in the heart of the campus of the University of Illinois with the campus in its heart. And I heard her pray. And what was revealed to me in her prayers was her heart. She had a passion for students. And I'm sure there were things that had happened to the church where she didn't quite feel like she fit in many ways with the worship style and all that. But she wanted to see students at the University of Illinois come to know Jesus. And it was through her prayers I captured to see her heart. And I think prayer 
reveals the heart of people. Our gospel text this morning is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospels, and in it, we have an opportunity to hear him share his heart with the Father. It's an amazing passage, one of my favorites in Scripture. Um, Archbishop uh, Temple, in the mid-20th century, William Temple said regarding this prayer, we now come to what is perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels, and it's often called the high priestly prayer. That is a long history going back to Cyril of Alexandria in the early 5th century. But um, what we see in this is a window in the heart of Jesus. We see his purposes, his passion, his priorities. What's most important to him to see happen in the lives is followers. And if that is the case, uh, we as followers of Jesus ought to take special heed. We know from Hebrews 7.25 and 8.34 the wonderful truth that Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father interceding in prayer for us. And it's a wonderful truth. But here we hear it in John chapter 17. We hear him interceding. And I really believe this morning as we get into this passage, he is interceding for us during this worship service that we might really receive according to our needs what he wants us to hear. The context text of the prayer is important, as has been pointed out in each of the five messages, the very fine ones that we've had in the upper room discourse. Spoken right before Jesus traveled with his disciples to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus pray at this moment when there was so much to teach the, the, the disciples? There was all kinds of things that maybe he felt they needed to know, but he prays. Why has the Holy Spirit given us such a detailed account of this prayer? The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, Jesus here shows teachers an example that they should not only occupy themselves in sowing the word, but by mixing their prayers with it, should implore God's help that his blessing would make their work fruitful. And certainly Jesus shows that prayer as well as the teaching of the word is vital for ministry that has an impact for kingdom begins with prayer, and he's showing them this. Can you imagine sitting in that upper room with other disciples, what this must have felt like? What it felt like as he prayed for them, what it meant to them as he prayed for them. He also was the timing of his prayer. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this earth. He said, Father, the hour has come. Previous in the Gospels, my hour has not yet come, but now the hour is here. The hour has come. In my experience as a pastor, it's been over 40 years, um, and at the, I've spent a lot of time at the bedside of those who are coming near uh, their hour of death. What they share with me are not, you know, minor things. They share what's utmost on their heart. And the, prominent, the prospect of imminent death often uncovers the deepest needs of a person's soul. Um, back in Urbana, Mindy and I developed a close friendship with a couple uh, named Bill and Barb Edwards. We recently had a reunion with Barb uh, uh, over dinner. Uh, she came back from the mission field. But they were leaders in Bible study fellowship. Bill was a very successful businessman uh, in the Urbana-Champaign community, uh, well-known because he used to be the captain 
of, of the Fighting Illini basketball team. Very fit, worked out daily. Our children often say, he should be governor. He just looks like that, you know? <laughs> but at age 55, Bill was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was a dear friend, and in a year, um, he passed away as cancer just ravaged that fit body. It was a very hard thing to walk through with him. During his final days of his life, I found out this later, um, he told his wife, Barb, I want you to share this at my memorial service. And it was the custom in funerals that we had at Twin City Bible Church that um, there would be a time of sharing where people be invited to come up. To my surprise, Barb came up. And she said, before Bill died, he wanted me to share these words with you. Life is not about power, possession, or prestige. Life is not about us. This life is about God and what God wants us to do through us, wants to do through us as we live for him. That was what was on Bill's heart. Here's this, the people gathered, were kind of like some of the who's who in Champaign-Urbana, but that is what he wanted them to hear as he was going to, the, to be with the Lord. The prospect of imminent death uncovers the deepest concerns of a person's soul. That's true of the Lord Jesus Christ in this prayer. Well, this greatest of all intercessory prayers divides neatly into three sections, if you want a three-point servant, Jesus' prayer for himself, Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and Jesus' prayer for all believers, including you and me. He begins by saying, Father, looks up to him and says, Father, and it reels that wonderful intimacy, that close, close union with the Father. He uses the word Abba, which most of you know, it's a word containing something very intimate, like daddy. It's unique to Jesus, unheard of in the address of any other religious leader. We have a record in the Gospels of 21 prayers of Jesus. On every occasion, he uses this characteristic word of address, Abba, with only one significant exception, and that's on the cross in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I like the word Papa because that is what my grandchildren call me. I'm Papa Bill. Only they use it to address me. And it is a word that melts my heart, feel connected with them. We just had our four children, their spouses, and our eight grandchildren uh, in town this past weekend for a family reunion. So if Mindy and I look a little bit exhausted, uh, that's what it is. But... Um, my grandchildren would come to me with requests like, Papa Bill, can I have an extra helping of ice cream? <laughs> what am I going to do, you know, in this intimate relationship? But fortunately, I'm learning to say, first, uh, ask your mom and dad if it's okay <laughs> as they get sugared up. Amazingly also, Jesus at age 33 was able to say to the father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing, or as the ESV says, accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. How could he possibly say this? He taught thousands of people, and yet thousands still had not heard his teaching. He had healed many lepers, but many were still infested with sores. He had enabled many blind people to see, but many still could not. So how could he say, I've completed this work that you gave me to do? It's very instructive 
for you and me. There are so many things we can do, good things, great opportunities, and yet all require, frankly, more time than we have, more time we can give. Many of us live in the tyranny of the urgent, and we are prone to burn out. I've been there at times as a pastor. I've learned to say no to some good things in order to say yes to some better things. What is the Father asking me to do? I seek to do that daily. What are you asking me to do? For some of us, we really need to respond fully uh, to the challenge of what the Father wants us to do. And, and what God has, I just want to uh, emphasize this, God has a work for you to do. Um, he has a unique call upon your life, things he wants you to accomplish, lives he wants you to touch for eternity. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of our lives here on earth what the Lord did? Father, I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. I want that with all my heart, and I hope you do also. There was, of course, one more work that left to be done to be brought to completion, and that was the work on the cross by which we are saved. And when Jesus cried out uh, that it is finished, it, was, it is completed, tetelestai, it's connected with this word teleo for complete, and here the finished work of Jesus was done that we might have life eternal through his death. And as the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. We add nothing to his finished work. Wonderfully, it didn't stop there. Jesus was glorified when the Father raised him from the dead, triumphing over sin, Satan, death, and hell. And Jesus is now in heaven, where he's glorified in the presence of the Father at his right hand, endued with the glory that he shared with the Father eternally before the world began. So this prayer of Jesus has already been answered, and yet it waits a final consummation and fulfillment when Jesus comes again. And at that time, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be the finished work. In the next section, Jesus prays for his disciples, verses 5 through 19. What you sense is Jesus' heart for them. He's invested in them for three years and loves them deeply. They weren't those that the Father in his sovereign grace had given him. They were his treasured possession. As we know, they certainly were not sinless. But here's what Jesus said they did. They had received eternal life and came to know in a deep and personal way the Father and his Son, Jesus. They received Jesus' word and came to know the truth and believed that the Father had sent him. They brought Jesus' glory. What are the chief concerns of Jesus' prayer for his disciple? What is on his heart as he prays for them? And what, by implication, is his concern for us who have come to believe through their witness as Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father? I see five things, and I know time, I got to do them fast. <laughs> but his first concern is protection. The disciples are facing two formidable foes. First, the world, which has hated them. And there are areas in where we're going to take a stand for Jesus, where we're going to experience hate. And we need to see the acceptance of love of Jesus and being true to his word. People who are living in darkness and loving it don't like to be 
around the light. But the second is the devil. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. D.A. Carson says the spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even our games than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. As Luther wrote in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is, uh, is Our God, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work his, fo- his woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And were the not right man not on our side, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be toast, to put it in common <laughs> vernacular. And I've found this to be true. Um, never is he more present in, in our personal lives when we're seeking to live on the cutting edge of faith and having, uh, seeking to have an impact for his kingdom in the city. Never is he more present than when in the life of our church, his church universal, believers are seeking to break down strongholds of oppression, evil stuff, and to stand for justice in an unjust world. We need to remember, as Paul reminded the Ephesians in chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I realize when I come into a counseling situation, Mindy and I do counseling together, there are spiritual forces going on that are hurting marriages and that are really the people, individuals are struggling with. And I make a daily practice to really realize that I need the Lord and I need to be fully armed with him. So I have in my prayer litany, uh, Lord, as I buckle up the belt of truth, uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness, strap on the boots of the gospel, take up the shield of faith, it'll quench the fiery darts of the evil one. And putting on the helmet of salvation, taking up the sword of the spirit, and unleashing the powerful weapon of prayer, that is where the power is. That can break strongholds. His second prayer is for unity says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, as even as we are one. That was no easy task with the disciples. And like any church in this group, there were political tensions. You can imagine the radical Simon the Zealot encountering establishment-oriented Matthew. There were personal differences. Uh, James and John called the sons of thunder with issues in anger management. Uh, Type A Peter, who would boldly act and speak, often without careful thinking. And then you have to imagine Judas's defection really, really threatened the unity of the disciples. Kind of when someone walks away from the Lord that you know dearly, and it's really, really disheartening. For Jesus, unity was of paramount importance, and unity is of paramount importance for his followers today in the 21st century. I'm going to come back to that a little later as we look at his final prayer for us. Third prayer for the disciples 
is that they would experience joy, which was emphasized in last week's sermon. So I'm not going to go into that in detail, but just to say uh, that joy is not uh, a giddy happiness or something like that. It's a deep-seated contentment with the Lord, a peace that he gives, and a deep knowledge of him in intimacy with him. It's a gift and a fruit of God's grace. Joy is kara, grace is charis in the group, very close, and it really comes from the grace of God. It doesn't go up and down like the stock market. It's an abiding uh, contentment with life circumstances, and some of those can be tough, and the disciples were going to face some really, really tough stuff. But they were following their master who said, for the joy set before me, he endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he calls us to do that also. Joy is, almost, is often most profound in times of adversity. Some of that adversity will be from circumstances outside of us. Some of that challenge can be within us as we deal with our own stuff. I personally came from a home in which um, my mother uh, had clinical depression. And biochemically and even having a predisposition towards some melancholy, I've had to deal in my ministry with that. And yet I would say in the midst of that, even some of the darkest times, I've experienced joy. Because I know that Jesus is with me in that experience. He understands that in Gethsemane. He experienced sorrow unto death. And he understands he's with me. And I experience a, a desperate need for him, which I wish I always had. And uh, I write, as, I write in, as I look at my journals during those times, uh, it's, it's that uh, time when I'm most intimate with Jesus and pouring out my heart to him. And then Jesus... Um, has the concern of impact in the world, that we would be purposeful and missional. Jesus says, I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus doesn't want his followers to be conformed to the world, but as Paul says, transformed by the renewing of their minds. But he wants them to have an impact, to be salt and light, stopping the spread of evil, spreading the light of the gospel. He wants you and me to be salt and light in the city, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. My wife, Mindy, and I have been so impressed with what this church is involved in, in terms of reach out, reaching out to refugees, helping people who are caught in trafficking, and uh, living among the marginalized to show the good news of the gospel to them. He wants us to be instruments of light, spreading the good news about Jesus among our friends, neighbors, and coworkers who do not yet know him. Jesus says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. He who came to seek and to save the lost sends us to do likewise. And then the fifth emphasis in Jesus' prayer is that his disciples be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the truth of Scripture. Jesus prays to the Father in verses 17 and 19, sanctify them in the truth, and then says, your word is truth. In March of last year, the cover of Time magazine uh, in one of the weeks just stunned me. It says, um, 
and, and the, the title of it was, Is Truth Dead? Is Truth Dead? And of course, it was referring to all of the hullabaloo we have right now with the issues of alleged fake news and alternative facts and all these kinds of things uh, that we're dealing with. There's just a basic mistrust in our nation right now, the quandary of what, what can we believe? And in Jesus' day of his trial, a cynical pilot quipped, well, what's truth? When Jesus said, I come, I've come as a witness to the truth. Well, as Jesus asserted in the first sermon we had in this series, Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. His words can be utterly dependent upon. If we want to find total trustworthiness, we find it in his word. His word is truth. And if you abide in his word, you are truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's a transformative power of truth. That God intends his word to transform our lives so that we become more like Jesus and be freed of strongholds. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. It has the power to do that. Jesus' prayer concludes with a prayer for us in verses 20 to 26. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Wow. Amazing thing, Jesus gazes down the corridor of history, and he prays for us. I don't know if you heard that this morning. That's a, what a text to hear and to realize by his spirit he's praying for us. And what is paramount there? The unity of the church, that they may all be one just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world might believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Note that twice-used phrase, that the world may believe. What will cause a watching world to believe in Jesus? I believe that it's as followers are one, unified in the bonds of love that flows from the oneness that exists between the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. Why would a watching world be moved to believe in Jesus through seeing true unity? Well, what we see in our nation today and even in the world is disunity. And, uh, you know, there's been a reference to us being the divided states of America, where polarization abounds. And our world itself, characterized by so much violence and strife, whether in the Syria, Ukraine, Uganda, Venezuela, many other nations. Many of us have experienced the disillusioning impact of church splits, which breaks the heart of God, turns people away from the Christian faith. I found in my counseling people who want nothing to do with God because of what they saw in a split in a church and what they experienced. But Jesus is praying for us that we, imperfect followers that we might be, he says, might become perfectly one so that the world may know the love of the Father through Jesus. I feel like I got a glimpse of that in my experience of pastoring Twin City Bible Church. It was an interesting thing. I, became, I came to know um, a priest by the name of Monsignor Stuart Swetland. Um, he headed up the St. John's Ministry in the middle of campus, 
And uh, I had met him at, at pro-life rallies. We both um, had a passion uh, for really uh, standing be behind and with the unborn. And uh, he said, I would like to have lunch with you. So we went out for lunch. And he said to me, Bill, I believe that if, if evangelical Catholics and evangelical Protestants, if we don't get our act together, the church is going to go down the tubes. It started a relationship uh, with Stuart Swetland, brilliant guy, uh, Rhodes Scholar, Oxford, all this. He was way over my head intellectually. But uh, we had a common heart for the church. We didn't agree on everything, but we did realize there were many things we did agree on. And what we did was uh, had an exchange whereby he came to an education hour at Twin City Bible Church, and then I was invited to go speak to his, both his staff and the Newman Center on this topic. What do we agree on? And there were so many things that we did find that we agreed on. We agreed on, the, of course, the existence of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, necessity and efficacy of his atoning death for the sins of the world, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the reality of heaven and hell, the necessity of people coming into a personal saving relationship with Jesus and the certain return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all the things we agreed on, on moral teaching, one of which I mentioned. So we did this. And um, what happened is we never had a larger crowd at the education hour at our church, but also um, at, when I spoke to the Newman Center, there were people out the aisles at the English building on campus some of them couldn't even get in. And I saw people weeping because we were working at really seeking the unity of the church. We didn't pretend that we agreed on everything, but there was much that we could work on. That was just one of many things. Uh, one other one I'd mention is that we had all-campus worship at the University of Illinois where all the student groups came together and uh, they filled Fullinger Auditorium on the campus 1,800 seats, praising God together. You know, all these groups here, NAVS crew, IV, there was an African-American group called Faith, Covenant Fellowship, Illini Life, all of these uh, people came together to demonstrate the unity and worship the Lord together. Well, for us, I'm just getting to know uh, Emmanuel Anglican Church, and we love what we've gotten to know. I was so impressed to hear about the founding of the church, and you could elaborate a lot more on this, but I, my understanding was that it was born, even the name of Emmanuel Anglican Church was born out of unity in prayer, and the group really strove for that. And it tells us in the Ephesians text that was read, be eager to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Also, of course, by application, it involves striving for unity in our relationships with brothers and sisters here, striving for unity with our spouses, of the, for those of us who are married, unity in our families, for those with children, striving for unity in order that a watching world may come to know Jesus and that God be glorified. And the wonderful encouragement we have is this, our Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us.